Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Busy few hours ahead. We are expecting to hear from Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart around 1215. His update on what the city is doing in response to COVID-19. Get ready to say goodbye to free parking if you've been using the meters that are no longer being enforced. We'll hear from him. We'll bring you that live as it happens. And a bit later on in the program, we're going to hear from Premier John Horgan. He is speaking to the province today as well. That's happening around 150. We'll bring that live to you also. But we're starting off the show today looking at the eventual reopen, um, what that's going to look like, particularly for the hospitality industry, one of the industries that has been very hard hit because of the coronavirus. One Vancouver City Councillor has put a motion forward about really using open spaces and patios when restaurants do get the green light to go ahead. And Sarah Kirby Young is actually going to be talking to Linda Steele about this at 3.15 today. Right now, though, we are joined by Charles Gauthier, who is the CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. Charles is on the line with us. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Jill. Uh, what is your take on what Councillor Kirby Young has put forward, uh, putting this motion forward, which is asking for better use of open spaces, of patios, uh, to do this in a safe way when we're given the green light uh, to go ahead and start reopening businesses such as restaurants? Well, it's a great idea, and we support it as an organization. Uh, it kind of falls into line with uh, what city staff have been talking about, room to move, room to queue, and room to load. So basically creating more space for us to do those activities. And I would add the fourth one now called room to dine. And uh, we need to find ways of increasing our social distance uh, at restaurants and in public spaces so that activity can occur. So we fully support it. We think it's a great idea. Uh, We need to find a way to expedite it. Like speed over perfection here is really important. Uh, And uh, I would try to discourage an application process or any kind of fees that should be paid. How can we just let the restaurants do it and then follow up and do checks to ensure that they're done safely? Um, Let's not make it too bureaucratic. Right. Uh, probably easier said than done when we're talking about a council in a city where if, if you even put a sandwich board on the sidewalk, you can get cited or you need permission to do that. Going from that scenario to a free-for-all, set up tables and chairs and take over these open spaces. Well, I think we have to do things differently. You know, typically um, a, a restaurant applying for a sidewalk patio uh, is a very lengthy process. We've had a number of our member businesses that have done that, and they've missed an entire patio season, uh, which is a very brief summer period for us here in the city. We need to find a way to make it quicker. And, uh, you know, similar to how groceries and pharmacies have adapted under the COVID-19 situation, you know, they, they had some basic guidelines of how they can actually open up and conduct their business. And there may have been some follow-up by health officials in terms to ensure that it was being done appropriately. And we saw that in grocery stores. You know, uh, we didn't see the decals on the floors regarding social distancing. They had masking tape. Uh, the aisles were actually two-way aisles rather than now. They're one-way aisles. So I think we need to find a way to allow the restaurants to take over that public space uh, to create these safe dining uh, areas in the outdoors and uh, and then follow up with uh, inspections and tweak it. But let's not make it complicated because otherwise we're going to we're going to miss a golden opportunity to be able to do this for the summer season. And I would also encourage the city to look at uh, how can we make this more long term? Uh, could could businesses set up tents, temporary tents like they did during the Olympics? 
for outdoor patios. Uh, could we look at the front plaza of the Vancouver Art Gallery to create a large tent structure uh, and tables and chairs for people to uh, have takeout meals from the nearby restaurants uh, for, or from the food trucks and go into that tented structure uh, to enjoy meals? Uh, could we allow alcoholic beverages to be sold and consumed in public spaces? I think we should look at everything and anything to help our restaurant sector uh, thrive and survive over the course of the next year or so. And a lot of people are wondering as well about what you just mentioned, the alcoholic beverages. We've seen during the pandemic restaurants allowed to deliver uh, beer and wine to people with their orders. A lot of people are hoping that stays post-pandemic. Uh, would you like to see something like that stay as well and, uh, and for the city, even the province, to make that change? Yes, and you know what? A lot of people have been complimenting how quickly we've been able to remove barriers during this uh, very challenging period of time. Um, you know, I'm hoping that this could become more of the operand, uh, our modus operandi as we move forward. Uh, why do we need to complicate it and uh, make it extremely bureaucratic? You know, right now, the utmost priority should be public safety, public health. Um, you know, if a restaurant sets up a patio and they don't put public safety at risk, and if they don't make it a public health issue either, then let it continue. Um, I just feel that we need to change things in terms of how we do things. And maybe one of the positive things coming out of COVID-19 is that some of these temporary things will become permanent. All right. Well, Charles, we'll wait and see what happens with this motion and moving forward. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks for the opportunity. Well, uh, as you've been hearing in the news, workers have now tested positive for the coronavirus at two more lower mainland meat processing plants. That brings uh, the total to four. And has some people concerned not only about the conditions in these facilities, but also about the supply of meats and poultry as we continue dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's bring in James Verkamen, a UBC professor in the Faculty of Land and Food Systems. He joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you. Do you think we should be concerned or how concerned should we be about the cases, the positive cases at meat processing facilities? Well, if it was only poultry, you know, consumers always have the option to switch to beef and to pork. But unfortunately, it's uh, beef and pork are having their own problems outside of British Columbia. So it might be the perfect storm for for meat, uh, meat supply. And in the very beginning of this, it seems like such a long time ago, but when we first started dealing with this pandemic and see looking at these restrictions, we were reassured by politicians, by health officials, that there was no issue with the food supply. Does this change things? Well, it's, it's very hard to predict. Um, and as week by week, things do change. Um, I, I think looking in hindsight, we could have probably predicted that when you look at some of the conditions in these processing plants, how the workers have to stay close to each other, that we might have these issues. But there were so many other things going on that I think it was just not an issue to deal with right away. Is it an issue, do you think, then, of workers in these facilities that it's impossible to keep that physical distance between each worker? Is it that in combination with maybe cleaning, um, reg- regiments of cleaning in these in these places? Or what do you think has led to these being hotspots for the outbreak? Well, again, that's not really my area of expertise, but I expect that more could be done to try to, to manage that. And, and, you know, to have fewer workers to reduce the risk, which would mean fewer output. And that's probably better than having a plant shut down completely. But 
you know, until problems occur, uh, you're not necessarily going to take the, that type of proactive action. But uh, I think, you know, when you look at British Columbia, uh, we are running a closed system because we have supply management. So the poultry we produce is all processed here in British Columbia. So that's very different than pork and beef, which we rely on these very large scale plants uh, in Alberta and other places. So the extent that we can do social distancing in, say, a poultry plant might be uh, in British Columbia, a smaller plant of, say, 500 employees might be quite different than what it would be, say, in Brooks, Alberta, where they have a plant that's like 2,500 and supplying a large amount of the Canadian market. And when you mentioned that as well, that we are dependent on getting those other meats from other places and that supply, it's not it's not only coming from within the province of BC. Uh, how does that factor in, do you think, as far as the supply chain and it being able to continue? Well, I think that's always been a concern for producers. Like the, the ranchers in British Columbia have always been concerned that their beef ends up being sent to uh, Alberta and Washington for finishing and slaughter. And we don't really have much slaughter plus, uh, facilities here in British Columbia. So yeah, we're, we're we're very reliant on what happens in you know southern Alberta for for meat, and if they happen to have prolonged problems, which very well could be the case, then we're going to see certainly see shortage in in our beef supply. Pork, we're about 10% self-sufficient in terms of what we produce, so we're reliant also on Alberta and even Quebec and other places for the pork. And uh, right now in the United States, there's huge problems with uh, beef and pork. And because we're such an integrated North American market, if there's shortages in the U.S., some of the processed food might go down to the U.S. as part of our free trade agreement. We can't sort of keep it up here in Canada just for ourselves. Hmm. And is it the shortage because we're seeing these plants shut down and we're because of the virus? Because, or can you explain kind of how that works in that some people might look at this and think, well, big deal. We don't need to eat meat to survive. If we don't eat meat for a while, that's not a problem. But what does it actually do to the supply chain to then, if the plants are closed, what does that mean? Does that do we then have a backup of livestock? How does it kind of domino? Yeah, it's very much a domino because especially with um, the, things like pork, they're a fairly short, you know, months of, of a life cycle. So it's very expensive to keep an animal that's close to slaughter weight on feed because they're on very high calorie feed in those last couple of weeks. So for farmers, they just can't afford to hang on to them for another few weeks. Um, and so, yeah, you, we, right now we have a big glut of livestock building up very quickly at the farm level. And, um, you know, we might see culling is already happening in the States. And, you know, we might see some of that starting to happen here in Canada. So we'll have sort of you know, very low prices for farmers uh, and could very well be higher prices for consumers, which is really unusual for us. Uh, right. So in that scenario, it's cheaper for a farmer to call the, the herd, to, to call the animals rather than hang on to them in hopes that things open up again sooner rather than later. Well, farmers don't want to do this. I mean, that's their, that's their last resort. But when they're on really tight budgets as well, and you have looking at a prospect of hanging on to an animal at, and eventually selling it at a very low price and looking at, you know, an expensive feed regime, sometimes you feel you have no other option. Uh, we, we supply a lot of, you know, young, uh, you know, like piglets to the U.S., for example, uh, uh, and but their system doesn't want them anymore. They, they, it's all backlog. So I expect a lot of these piglets from Quebec and Manitoba will have to be called, at, you know, in the fairly near future. And that could lead to then shortages in, in, in you know, in the months ahead because of that call.
Does it point to a breakdown of the system or a weakened, uh, weak part of the system, or is it um, another fact, another case of we, we didn't anticipate that we'd be dealing with a global pandemic, and that that even if we 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 knew there were these weak spots in the system, uh, the pandemic has kind of thrown everything into question. Well, it's a very good question. It's a trade-off. I mean, the economies of scale we achieve by having very large processing plants and maybe even the localization of pollution that comes from these plants is perhaps a good thing. It does lower cost, but it shows you how vulnerable we are when we get struck by a pandemic or a listeresis outbreak or anything that these food supply chains are are very vulnerable. Now, fortunately, I mean, I think we can, we can all manage to eat less meat. Um, Maybe maybe the saving grace is that if we continue on a lockdown, the kind of summer barbecue season won't be nearly as meat meat extensive as it would be. So maybe the meat demand would be lower, and that's going to partially offset the lower supply that we expect to see. I find it interesting too because it does point out to when, when we're looking at this and when you're talking about the supply and where things come from, the economies of scale. Uh, there's a reason why people don't want to pay twenty dollars for a lamb chop, and there's a reason why we don't pay that. Yeah, I mean, it it, 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 it it all comes down to sort of where consumers are at. I mean, the restaurants are, have their own supply chain and they have premium products and, you know, the, the prices sort of reflect what, what they offer. But I think just the everyday family is budget uh, conscious and they're, you know, a lot of them are sort of pretty income constrained. So they're pretty happy to find, have sort of inexpensive meat coming from very large scale plants as compared to having, you know, it's sure if we could all afford the local beef that's grass fed and and that would be great. But the reality is that that's not possible for many for many British Columbians. And so at this point, with what we know about the outbreaks, uh, processing facilities, what's happening in the States, as far as, as you said, some calls already taking place, uh, do you anticipate we will see a shortage or is it too soon to kind of uh, look at what might happen next? Well, again, the system is pretty good. There's a fair bit of inventory in the system. I mean, there we're eating less because restaurants and these sorts of things are closed and we're, we're not sort of having the barbecues as much. So we've got a bit of slack in the system. We could probably go for a few weeks before we start noticing things. But, uh, you know, it's not clear how they're going to solve these problems uh, overnight and throughout North America. That's the problem. It's all the plants, you know, throughout North America are either have had issues or will have issues. So, um, you know, it's not going to be as abrupt as, say, the price of cauliflower, which can just jump up to $9 a head with, uh, with its, you know, a problem in California, like a, a, a frost or something. But we could sure certainly see a gradual ramping up of prices due to shortages, maybe over the coming months. And of course, once consumers sense that, if they start hoarding, the people with deep freezes say, you know what, I should buy it. Well, it's inexpensive. Let's buy lots of it now. And of course, that just puts a lot more added pressure on prices and, and demand. All right. We will leave it there. Professor Verkamen, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for being with us today. We are going to shift gears a little bit and take a look at some test results involving household pets and animals when it comes to the coronavirus. And Vancouver veterinarian Lauren Adelman joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Lauren, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Uh, We've been talking about this a little bit. Uh, There hasn't been huge concern, but we've now seen the first dog in North America, uh, the report of an infected dog. What does this mean? Yeah, so a little pug named Winston tested positive in North Carolina through a study at the Duke University. And that 
um, result comes pretty quickly after two cats in New York actually tested positive last week. And then we all are probably aware of those eight lions and tigers that showed up positive at the Bronx Zoo not too long ago either. So it's clear based on these reports, um, as well as previous reports of animals, particularly dogs and cats testing positive in Hong Kong, that the risk of transmission to animals from humans is not completely unheard of. It's not as common as human to human in transmission um, by any means, but it is definitely something we need to be thinking about when we are spending time with our furry companions and have potential exposures or are sick. Uh, So one of the big questions I think people have in that people are still going to dog parks and taking their pets out and getting fresh air, should you let other people pet your dog at this point? So sadly, the answer to that is actually no. And I am a dog owner, too. I know that is very hard, especially when your dogs want to go interact with other people and other pets. But because of these new reports, the CDC has actually put out new guidelines, which include social distancing to include our companion animals. So essentially, they're recommending that cats should be kept indoors whenever possible, and dogs should really only be walked on a leash uh, and maintaining at least six feet apart from other people and animals. And what if you have a pet that perhaps has been exposed to somebody who has had the virus or was isolating at home, was exposed to it or showing symptoms, and, and there's been that exposure? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And really, we should be treating them just like we would other humans in the household. So if you're sick or someone in your household sick, ideally, you should be isolating humans and pets from that person. Now, obviously, that's a bit of an issue if you live alone and can't do that and you have you know, your own pets to take care of. In those instances, you want to limit your physical contact with your pet. So ideally, wear a mask around them, wash your hands before and after handling them, and avoid you know, cuddling with them, giving them kisses on the mouth, sharing food with them, all the things we love to do with them. But just for you know, their own benefit, try and minimize that kind of contact. And you know, obviously, if your pet potentially has been exposed to you or someone else in your household, you really shouldn't be allowing them to interact with other people or animals either. Uh, In the case of Winston, uh, from what I understand, so Winston the pug showed some mild uh, respiratory signs uh, but is expected to fully recover. How concerned should people be about if their pets and their dogs in particular uh, do show some respiratory signs? Yeah, and I think, you know, all the cases that have been reported thus far, you know, just like Winston, he had very mild respiratory signs, and and it was really at the peak of his his owner's illness. And the owners themselves said, you know, it was something we might not have even noticed or taken him in for by any means. And so the signs tend to be much less severe in our companion animals as in people. Now, keep in mind that especially for cats and dogs, there's a whole slew of other respiratory issues that can cause similar signs that are going to be a lot more common than COVID is going to be. So, you know, anytime you're concerned about your pet, the key is, you know, obviously if it's an emergency, you need to bring them in. But if you're not sure if your pet needs medical attention, it's always a good idea to call your vet and get advice from them. And in case people are hearing this and getting overly concerned, we should make sure people understand that that there's nothing to say at this point or there's been no evidence that pets are spreading this, that these cases where animals have tested positive, if I'm correct in saying this, they've all been cases where humans have have spread it to the animals? 
Absolutely. So there is no evidence at this point that dogs or cats or any other animals can spread it back to humans. All of the cases have been human to animal transmission. And overall, animals are not believed to play a significant role in transmission of COVID-19. They're kind of a bystander. If you think about it, with all the people that are being infected, if dogs and cats were very susceptible to this, we'd be seeing cases, you know, pop up left, right and center. And so their susceptibility appears you know, not to be as, they're not as susceptible as people are. But also, yes, there is absolutely no evidence they can transmit it back to people. And so there's really no need to be overly concerned and definitely no need to, you know, think about anything like rehoming animals, which I know in other areas of the world has become a concern. And and you mentioned this as well, that if somebody does have a concern to call their vet, because I know that has changed as well and that uh, veterinary yeah. clinics don't want people showing up and coming in, that that's kind of the new protocol. Is that what you're encouraging people then for any illness, not not only COVID, but for illnesses or if they have questions to, to make sure they can still call their vet? Absolutely. So, so veterinary medicine is an essential service, but we have been, um, you know, basically told to only see urgent and emergent cases to a limit our exposure uh, to people and animals, but also to conserve all that, you know, personal protective equipment that's really in high demand right now. And so based on that, you know, we are only seeing urgent and emergent cases in veterinary hospitals. And if you're not sure if your animal has something urgent or more emergent call in and most veterinary hospitals right now are also working with a protocol that only animals are allowed in the building, not people. So owners are waiting outside while animals are being seen in the building and all communications are, are made by phone. And so, yeah, if at all you're concerned, you're not sure if you should be bringing your pet in, you have an emergency, definitely call ahead. That way your veterinarian um, can be prepared for what to expect and advise you appropriately. All right. Good advice. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. You're very welcome.